Welcome back to Chat with the Designers, a weekly technical discussion forum for amateur radio homebrewers and experimenters, with your hosts, George, N2APB, and Joe, N2CX. This is George, N2APB and co-host Joe N2CX with tonight's session of Chat with the Designers for March 6, 2012. Our uh, topic tonight is um, the rainbow tuner, the return of the rainbow tuner. We'll be talking about analysis and application of the different circuits. Okay, we're talking about uh, the, tonight the, uh, the rainbow tuner, um, which is a 1997 vintage uh, project designed by uh, Joe N2CX. And uh, one of the first projects to really kick off the New Jersey QRP Club uh, from a, uh, putting the kits on the market and putting the club on the market, on the, on the scene for providing kits. And it was a good time by all back then. And the kit was a limited run, was not available for a long time. Um, it's very likely that we'll have it available shortly again. And um, again, the same deal as last week. If we do get it out, uh, those who are checked in at this particular point for this session here will have an opportunity to get it at uh, at, at cost, essentially. So um, doing so would give you an opportunity to really kind of follow along in the discussion and do some experimenting, much like we're talking about and much as the nature of the chat with the designer sessions. So maybe with that kind of an incentive in mind, you might, uh, you might pay attention and ask some of those questions that are kind of bouncing around in, in your head. So, as I said, uh, Joe's going to cover uh, a lot of the material, and um, uh, it's our intention to use this as a platform for explaining the circuitry, explaining some of the basic principles of operation that happen to be implemented on the Rainbow Tuner project, of course, the actual antenna tuner, um, with hopes that you might be able to take those concepts and, and use them elsewhere or maybe just understand them a little bit better than you did before. Because there are a couple of clever things in there that, uh, that Joe designed in right from the get-go, and we even added to it along, um, along the way to make a, an even better value in the measurement of uh, SWR for the bench, and especially for the field. This is really a field type of uh, SWR unit. Okay, Joe, um, why don't you take it away? Okay, thank you for the intro, George. Yeah, the Rainbow Tuner uh, came about in, uh, it was actually, I believe, uh, 1996, when uh, there was a there was a contest back in the uh, deep dark mists of the last century. Uh, everybody was building things in Altoids tins, so there was a construction contest, uh, and a number of us designed little little goodies that would fit in Altoids tins. Um, for homebrewers and uh, QRPers in particular. And uh, I came up with the idea for the rainbow tuner, which would uh, fit in the uh, fit in an Altoids tin. It's a tuner for an in-fed half-wave antenna, just a wire antenna that's uh, very simple for, uh, for portable use. And um, along with the tuner, there was a multicolored uh, bar graph display that showed you the actual SWR instead of just having a uh, something that would dip or dim with uh, as you tune the uh, the tuner find out when you had the best match this actually 
showed you by means of a colored bar graph the uh, the actual SWR in uh, ranges. And it was intended uh, either for use uh, in the field or in the home, particularly the field. And uh, as George mentioned, uh, NJQRP sold, uh, I don't know, 500 or so of the darn things. We, we had a bunch of kidding parties. I can remember our, our club meetings were uh, really fun trying to stuff all those little parts in bags and get them out to people. Um, just by way of intro, there is stuff on the, uh, the web page. And uh, as George mentioned, I, and I heartily agree, it's, uh, it's best if you can pull up the web page and kind of watch that as, as we're talking here so that you get an idea of what we're talking about. There's a picture of um, the Rainbow Tuner Board, which uh, you can see the components. You see everything right there and an Altoids tin in the background so that you can see that it really was sized to fit in the Altoids tin. Um, there's block diagram. We'll be talking about that a little bit uh, later of uh, what's actually in there. But I wanted to stress that uh, this, this tuna was specifically for the NFED half-wave antenna. Um, a lot of us, when we operate portable, want to operate with as simple as an antenna as we can. Uh, and we'll just throw a random wire up at a tree or perhaps uh, try to have a resonant antenna, maybe a quarter-wave wire. But that can be inefficient because of ground loss. The, uh, the time-honored Hertzian antenna, a half-wavelength antenna, has an end impedance, a feedpoint impedance, of several thousand ohms. So it tends to be more ground-independent as far as loss is concerned than simpler antennas. So the, uh, the tuna was intended to, uh, to operate with that. Um, and a half-wave half wire on 40 meters is is only 66, roughly 66 feet long. So that's not too bad. On um, 20 meters, it'd be half that size. But um, one characteristic of the, go ahead, George. Sorry, Joe, I just wanted to kind of point out to uh, uh, to listeners that with the NFED half-wave antenna, it's, it's so critical that, that that's the antenna that we're talking about. That's what is pictured in figure six on the webpage. Uh, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, yeah, we'll get we'll get to that later, and th that is a good thing to point out, George. Thank you. Anyway, it's uh, it's relatively easy to put up, and it has the advantage that every half, every uh, harmonic, also uh, tunes the same way. It has the high same high impedance. So if you put up a forty meter half wave antenna uh, with a, a full wavelength on twenty meters, with two wavelengths on. Um, on uh, um, 10 meters, and it would be uh, one and a half wavelengths on on uh, 21 megahertz. So the thing repeats. It can be a multiband antenna, uh, which which is quite good. Uh, problem is many tuners can't handle the high impedance. The impedance is in the range of several thousand ohms, and many tuners, particularly the ones that are um, uh, the automatic tuners can't handle that high in impedance. They just will not resonate it and bring, uh, be able to transform the impedance down to uh, 50 ohms. So um, there are a number of circuits to do this. Uh, the time-honored way of doing it is what I used in the uh, Rainbow Tuner, which is to use a parallel resonant circuit with a, uh, an inductor and a variable capacitor to resonate the, the wire to tune out any reactants 
and then to tap down on the inductor to transform the impedance down to uh, 50 ohms. Uh, and and that, in that way, you have a, a relatively simple circuit that uh, is effective in tuning the antenna. And, uh, <clears throat> and you get it down to uh, where it's practical. Um, there, in addition, there's also obviously the, the, uh, the SWR bridge thrown in, uh, uh, in the same box so that you can tell when the thing is resonant. Um, be going in a minute into uh, description of the circuit. Start with the block diagram and then the circuit. But uh, are there any questions so far on uh, the concept of the uh, N-fed half-wave antenna and a simple tuner? Okay, hearing none, I'll charge ahead. Um, if you look at the block diagram, it uh, on the web page it shows you the uh, simple breakdown of the circuits in the tuner. As I fumble here to flip the pages one-handed, um, very very simple um, um, block diagram. There's a resistor bridge. I'll discuss that in a little bit more depth in a sec which allows you to uh, pick off the forward and reflected signals so that you can measure SWR. These are fed to a comparator, and the comparator uh, is what looks, uh, compares the forward and reflected uh, uh, signals and then lights a, a number of LEDs to indicate what the SWR is. The whole thing is powered by a battery, but uh, one of the handy features of this is that you don't have to uh, switch the battery. There's an auto detect circuit in it that uh, detects when RF is present and turns on the comparator to uh, uh, to save the battery when uh, when you're not transmitting. And it has the convenience that uh, though you do have to switch the bridge in and out, you don't have to switch power. So uh, you don't do like I do with all my battery powered equipment. Um, I forget to turn it off, and the next time I go to use it, I found it find out the battery is dead. The, uh, going next to the uh, circuit diagram, uh, it looks maybe a little intimidating, but it's not all that bad. There's uh, uh, the upper left-hand corner of the, uh, the circuit diagram. <clears throat> there are three resistors, uh, three 51-ohm resistors that are arranged in a Wheatstone bridge. And uh, the fourth arm of the bridge is the antenna. So the characteristic of the Wheatstone bridge is that uh, when all the, all the impedances in the bridge are the same, the left and right hands are symmetrical. Um, the voltage across the center of the bridge is null. It's zero. And as it turns out, uh, with RF on there, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, a forward sample uh, of the voltage can be, can be seen on the left-hand side of the bridge which uh, uh, we detect with a diode. And the right-hand side of the, and I'm sorry, between the right and left-hand sides of the bridge, looking uh, across the center, is a sample which represents the reflected power. Uh, and again, there's a diode detector there. So with this very simple bridge consisting of three resistors, a couple diode detectors, we have something that gives us two DC voltages uh, that correspond to the, the forward and reflected power. 
George, you uh, want to interject something? Yeah, I hope you don't mind me interrupting here, Joe. I just thought I'd add for clarity since, you know, you know, we worked on this so often, it, it, it's almost like a light bulb that comes on, that, that turns on um, when you see the circuit um, in, in the way that you, you sort of described it. But to, to help make it clearer, um, R1 and R2 are um, 51 ohm resistors. It's a, a voltage divider. Whatever the voltage coming in in the in terminal is uh, divided in half, and that's what is measured coming out the D1 and going down to the comparators. The other half of the circuit is R3 and the output terminal. So if you kind of consider that output terminal with a resistor going to ground, like in a tuned circuit, in a properly tuned antenna, you would have a 50 ohm um, impedance. That would be the 50 ohms going to ground. So the right-hand side of that bridge is also a resistive divider, 51 ohms on the top and 51 ohms at the bottom, such that the middle point is half of the input voltage again. And as Joe pointed out, the difference between the left-hand side and the right-hand side is zero in a nicely matched antenna tuner because, or an antenna situation, because the voltage um, at the halfway point on both of those legs is equal, and the difference between them is uh, zero, and that's how you get that that zero condition that you were mentioning across the, the middle, Joe. Just thought I'd end, uh, add that because if you put a resistor to ground, if you mentally put a resistor from output, the out uh, pin to ground, you would see that uh, relatively straightforward circuit. Yeah, thank you, George. Hey, uh, indeed, uh, I am so darn familiar with the darn thing that uh, it's second nature, but uh, it's always good to have another description in different terms to. Uh, to make it clear to someone who might uh, might not be familiar with the circuit, familiar with the circuit, uh, beauty of the uh, having a bridge like this is twofold. First of all, it's very simple, and as long as you use uh, resistors that that have a good uh, non-inductive characteristic, um, as most of the um, simple resistors these do, the non-power resistors do, it's a very broadband circuit. Uh, it'll work anywhere from DC well up into VHF with uh, no no change in performance. The other advantage is that uh, we used one ohm resistors here, and um, if you're if you're putting five watts in, they'll be close to uh, their rated dissipation power, but uh, for a simple period of less than a minute or so, they're not going to over dissipate. So. Uh, uh, it's small and inexpensive to build a bridge this way. Thirdly, there's a real advantage to using a resistive bridge that uh, you don't get with other simple bridges. That is that uh, it inherently has a 6 dB loss to it. Power coming in is attenuated by those resistors and dissipated by the resistors in the course of uh, the operation of the circuit. And uh, the beauty of that is that even if the antenna is completely mismatched, you won't reflect back an SWR of more than uh, two to one to your rig. So uh, some of the simple QRP rigs um, that are very sensitive to uh, burnout in the finals uh, don't suffer that when you use a resistive bridge like this. The downside is that you have to have a switch to uh, switch the, uh, the bridge in and out because you don't want to suffer the uh, 6 dB loss uh, when you're when you're not tuning up. Now the remainder of this circuit that uh, in the circuit diagram is is below the uh, the bridge. Uh, 
consists of four um, four comparators in a, a um, LM um, hmm, can't remember LM uh, three thirty nine comparator chip. It's uh, one fourteen pin IC with four comparators in there. What we do uh, with the comparators is we feed a sample of the forward voltage that comes from the uh, um, the left hand left side hand of the side. bridge. We feed that through four resistors, five resistors, and uh, we we uh, break break it up into a number of um, samples of that forward voltage that correspond to the different SWR values. On the right-hand side, the detector on the right-hand side that looks at the uh, reflected voltage goes directly to the four comparator inputs. So what we're doing is we're comparing the forward and reflected voltages uh, with a sample of the, the forward voltage and the, the reflected voltages directly so that uh, the comparators will turn on when they see a uh, uh, the appropriate voltage and they'll pick off the different SWR values. The beauty of this is that uh, there are no adjustments to it. It's simply looking at re ratios that are set by the resistors. So no matter within range, no matter what uh, power level you put in there, uh, the thing will automatically detect the uh, uh, detect the different SWR values. Now it's a bar graph, so what we do is um, the comparators um, will turn on when their inputs are in the appropriate condition. Uh, I'll explain that a little bit. Um, the For SWR of less than one and a half to one, uh, when the circuit turns on, it automatically lights a green LED. Uh, when the SWR is between one and a half to one and two to one, the bottom comparator in the chain turns on and that lights a yellow LED. So then you have two LEDs lit. Now, if they're in a row, that's part of a bar graph display. If the SWR then is between uh, two and three to one, the comparator uh, section turns on an orange LED. So then you have a bar graph of three LEDs, a green, a yellow, and an orange, so that you know the SWR is between uh, two and three to one. If the SWR is between three and five to one, the top comparator turns on. And uh, I'm sorry, the next to the top comparator turns on and red LED comes on. So then you have a bar graph of varying colors to indicate what SWR level you're on. Um, ran out of colors with LEDs. Blue ones were too expensive when we did this. So we cheated a little bit and there's a fourth comparator so that the, the top red LED comes on with a higher intensity when uh, the SWR is above five to one. So there is a multicolored bar graph display that at a glance you can tell exactly what range your SWR is in uh, very simply and very easily with no adjustments. Uh, circuit in the top right consisting of a, uh, a MOSFET transistor Q1 and a PNP transistor Q2 looks at the forward sample voltage and just turns on the comparators and the LEDs when RF is present. Uh, it's fed by a 9 volt, by a 12 volt battery. Um, and we had to use a 12 volt battery because the, uh, uh, in order to um, get the, the max range out of this, we had to work 
with the, um, the forward and reverse voltages directly. Uh, this thing will work over a range of about one to five watts. And uh, unfortunately, the, the voltage gets high enough when you're running at five watts that uh, you have to have a battery, a supply voltage that's higher than the inputs to the comparator. So uh, that means you've got to run it with a 12-volt battery. The beauty of it is that it's, uh, it's relatively low current drain. You can use one of the uh, little 12-volt batteries, an MN21 Duracell, that is, uh, provides you 12 volts, and it's the size of an N cell. So it, it fits it very nicely in a holder uh, right on the circuit board. You can use it with 9 volts, but uh, it'll, it won't operate very well above 3 volts. You'll be putting higher voltages on the comparator than the supply voltage, and the SWR indications won't be appropriate. Uh, final part of the circuit is uh, the tune circuit that I alluded to that, that actually uh, does the matching of the antenna. It consists of a variable capacitor C7, a, a toroidal inductor L1, which are connected in parallel. Uh, the antenna, the embed half-wave antenna goes to the top of the, um, the parallel tune circuit, and uh, your ground or counterpoise goes to the bottom. Um, and it's several thousand ohms at the very top of the tune circuit. So to match this to 50 ohms, there are several taps on the toroid. We have four taps here, which allow you, which you can pick. In the kit, there's a, a little header strip and a uh, shunt that you can connect across uh, any one of the four uh, four taps on the toroid to pick off the point that's closest to 50 ohms. So if your antenna is a little different in length than exactly half a wave, or perhaps a little closer to ground or some surrounding objects. Um, you can compensate for the fact that it might not be uh, the same impedance as if it were in free space by pricking, picking the appropriate uh, tap point there. So uh, you get pretty close to 50 ohms. In a nutshell, that's it. Uh, there, are, there are other things to it, but uh, that's the basic, uh, basic units and its basic operation. Other than having to adjust the tuner, it's all uh, self-compensating and uh, very simple. So now that I've assaulted you with all that, uh, are there any questions? Yeah, Joe, I have one if you can hear me. Yes, I can, Jerry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious about C2. Um, I know that's the filtering the output uh, from the detector there. But I was curious about the left side of that, why that goes to the other side of the bridge rather than to ground. That's because what you're actually doing is you're comparing the, uh, the you're comparing <clears throat> the voltages and the voltages with the appropriate phase across the middle of the bridge. That's that's what gives you the uh, the reflected sample. You're you're detecting the RF that's across the middle of the bridge and converting it to DC. Uh, very good. Thanks. That's, that's the beauty of the darn thing. That's what makes it so very, very simple. Any other questions? Where is the uh, that N-cell 12-volt battery available? Is, that, is it like a Radio Shack type buy? You can get it in, uh, you get it in CVS, uh, Walgreens, any of the places that carry uh, smoke detector or, or uh, 
uh, battery camera uh, camera batteries. And then you can get the the cell or the uh, holder for that cell um, at Mauser. We'll shortly have a parts list that'll be posted for this thing here, and uh, you know give you a source for some of this uh, the parts as well. Yeah, I'm not sure if they still are, but uh, at one time that N cell holder was also available at Radio Shack, so that was no big deal. Any other questions? Yes, I have one, please. Go ahead, Nick. All right, L1 uh, on the taps. Is there any kind of telroids uh, coils? I know I say it wrong. Uh, have always been kind of a mystery for me. Trying to look through the math on it. Uh, come up with an idea of how to redesign with it leaves me a little bit lost and I was wondering how you guys came up with the the, the taps on those uh, just by guessing or trial and error over <laughs> well you know there's always a little bit of trial and error uh, what we did was um, the nice thing about toroids is that um, <clears throat> pardon me a toroid will act as an auto transformer uh, in that the the ratio of the, um, uh, uh, if you tap down on, on the winding, the ratio of the number of turns you have tapped to the whole thing is an integer, and it's pretty close to exact because the, the coupling of the um, inductor is, uh, is about 95%, does not work with air cord coils. Uh, so, and uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but what we did was we tried to pick something in the range of of a thousand to something like five thousand ohms, and and to calculate what the uh, how far we had to tap down on the toroid, just in terms of a strict ratio, to get that impedance transformation, and uh, pick that number of turns, and we went to four turns, four different taps, to give us a wide adjustment range. Quite frankly, I've never I've only used the bottom three taps. I've only ever had to use them. In the various configurations, the top tap, uh, I never had an antenna that had an impedance that high. Does that answer your question? It, it does. Uh, second part will be the fact of choosing the core itself. Was there any specifics that you guys were looking for for the core or the type of core? Uh, yeah, we, we picked one that um, it's a, uh, it's a T68-2. Um, Amidon toroid core, which is probably a little bit of overkill uh, in terms of power. Uh, T60, a T68 size core will probably handle about 20 watts or so. Um, but we, we picked a core that was a little oversized so that when um, we, uh, we wound the turns on there, we could use something like uh, 26 gauge wire and it wouldn't be impossible to wind. If we use a physically smaller core, it would be the devil's own handiwork trying to wind the darn thing. So this was big enough that somebody with big paws like me could handle and uh, wind. And we picked the uh, the core material, the, the Dash 2 material, because that has the optimum uh, Q in the low HF range. Uh, that answer your question? Excellent, it did. Maybe one of these days you guys can expound a little bit more on that on that uh, coil type design then thank you no problem any more questions i like this uh this is paul 
Go ahead, Paul. Um, I'm <clears throat> I'm trying to compare the uh, schematic with the uh, block diagram, and I noticed that the uh, tuner section um, is connected to the out of the bridge. Um, it's unclear to me what uh, what in normal operation is connected to the in of the bridge. The input of the bridge uh, goes to your goes to your rig. I'm I'm flipping through the material here. I thought we had a connection diagram. Just a sec. Let me unkey for a sec so I can check my paper. Okay. Yeah, we don't have it in the on the web page, Joe. It's in the manual. Um, but um, so we don't have it here on the web page. Ah, that's why I couldn't find it. Yeah, the uh, the input to the bridge is. Uh, from the rig and the output goes through um, uh, goes to the uh, the tuner, and as I mentioned, we don't have switching in in the um, in the tin. That's something you have to do yourself, but uh, that's the way it is. And and uh, actually, if you go to the um, Jersey QRP webpage and look up uh, Rainbow Tuner, um, I believe there there are some app notes there of how you connect. Um, the bridge and the tuner pieces with a double pull, double throw switch to switch it in and out of the circuit. Oh, very good. Thank you very much. No problem. Any more questions? I've got a question about uh, the, the, the loaded queue of the uh, LC circuit. <laughs> I figured somebody would come up with that. Go ahead. Uh, I was looking at one of the, the references you have, I think it was WJI's page on uh, where he recommends using a loaded Q of 10 for the, uh, for the C7L1 uh, circuit. And uh, I was trying to go through the, uh, what that means when you, you go to the higher bands uh, from 40, 40 meters, assuming you've got all the numbers set up so that it works out to be a loaded Q of 10 and 40 meters. Then when you go to the higher bands, uh, it looks like you, you just can't with with a fixed inductor L1 and only a variable C7 to work with. You can't you can't maintain that same loaded Q because you've got to keep the uh, uh, the tank circuit resonant. So you're, you you double the frequency and you go to a square root of two factor for uh, you know the change in C as opposed to uh, if you want to keep the loaded Q the same, you'd have to go, uh, you know, proportional, like a, like a 2x factor. Is that, is that much of an issue, or, is, uh, or, or do you just run out of range on C7 before you get more than, uh, higher than, than 14 megahertz? Yeah, you've got it in a nutshell. And actually, you passed the test. I, I, um, I always try to put a zinger in, in the references, and... Uh, W8JI is kind of a uh, poo-pooer and a naysayer of the uh, NFED uh, half-wave antennas. So I stuck that, uh, that reference in there. I'm glad you read it. Indeed, uh, this thing is not optimum over a wide range with a fixed inductor. Uh, there will be some compromises. And as, as uh, we originally designed it, we used a uh, compression trimmer capacitor that would only tune over 40 and 30 meters. Um, eventually, we, we uh, used up the world's supply of surplus compression trimmers, couldn't get any more. So we had to go to the Polyvericon 
tuning cap like they use in uh, transistor radios. And with that, the minimum capacitance is low enough that indeed you can tune um, from 40 through 20 meters. And uh, the, the loaded queue is not optimum across the whole range. You know, if you run into the point of diminishing returns with something similar, it's good enough to work quite well, but it's not optimum. Um, another point that uh, JI makes, WJI and uh, um, W7ZOI have made are that some of the polyvericons have a, um, a relatively poor queue. So if you get the wrong cap there, you can have a lossy tuner from that. Point is with QRP, um, for, for a simple circuit, it does does pretty well. Okay, thanks. Righto, any more questions? Something that amazes me, Joe, all the time is that this is one of the projects we've had over the years that every, every way that you turn it, there's something that's really kind of uh, useful in it. Just ran across the room. Um, so um, I'm holding it here in my hand, uh, the circuit board. And what I see is uh, maybe one, two, three, four sections that are, are really kind of put together in a novel way that can be and have been used in other projects. For example, the, um, the tuner. I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the bridge is, uh, um, we took that and we used, uh, uh, in principle, we used it for the Micro 908, did we not? Yes, we did. So we took the, the Micro 908 is an antenna analyzer that uh, uses uh, a bridge and then feeds some other circuits, but nonetheless it uses this technique for getting the forward and reverse voltage along with some other samples along the way. The, um, um, the turn-on circuit for the power, uh, the VN10KM and the 3906 transistor, is a very useful circuit for any just about any RF type of circuit that you would like to have kind of turn on automatically. And that could be used, uh, you know, as separately as well. The comparators, uh, just kind of like that resistive chain and the comparators that you have there, um, comes to mind that it could be quite useful in indicating uh, uh, power levels, for example. If you were able to get um, detect power and have a DC voltage <clears throat> that might be on the, uh, uh, on the top of the voltage divider chain and have your detected RF voltage coming into the common point going to the uh, negative input, the inverting input of those op amps, the comparators, you could have a, a relatively simple uh, power output uh, or power indicator uh, bar graph. Um, would uh, would that be a good application there? Indeed, it would. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that does have uh, wider applications. And in fact, carrying that farther, and you may have been going there, um, we used a similar principle principle of looking at the um, the ratios of the the voltages there in the uh, the growler where we don't use a comparator we use a microprocessor and we do those comparisons of the uh, the various samples the forward and reverse samples uh, and computationally come up uh, with a, a logic form of the comparator to do the same trick so uh, yeah yeah a lot of a lot of uh, little little tricky things in there that can be used for other things as well 
That's, that's, how, that's... how low can the uh, input power be and still provide enough DC at the gate of uh, Q1 to uh, kick on the battery voltage? Um, the reason we use the VN10KM transistor is that it has a relatively low turn-on voltage. Some of the other uh, power MOSFETs, like the 2N7000, require almost 5 volts to turn it on. The VN10KM takes about a volt and a half. So um, reliably, this thing will work down to about a volt in. Um, I'm sorry, about a watt in. Um, some of them on a good day will work down to uh, about half a watt in. Joe, did you receive, did you mention the top comparator? I might have blanked out when you were talking about when the comparators turn on sequentially. And uh, the top two comparators are connected to the same red LED. Did you mention that? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I said that uh, what that does is when you get above a 5 to 1 SWR, it puts another uh, resistor in parallel so that that red LED lights up even brighter red for high SWR conditions. Uh, very good. And that's the same condition that last week during the discussion of the growler, the growler detected that over that, that very high SWR condition and it uh, uh, we had, because we had a controller on it, we were able to blink the LEDs, but that was the same principle. Indeed. Uh, any more questions? Okay. Um, George, do you have anything else? I'm, I'm going to go to uh, a little discussion of uh, some uh, mounting and uh, applications of, of the, uh, the tuner itself and, and talk about the uh, NFED uh, half-wave antennas, unless, uh, unless you have something more to add at the moment. No, I think the timing is good for that, Joe. Why don't you go right into it? All right, thank you. And thank you all for the questions. Uh, it's always nice to have some interaction here, and and uh, I, I'm always glad when I can answer the questions too. Nobody has stumped me quite yet. Okay, as George mentioned, the, uh, the some of the tuner pieces have different applications. Uh, indeed, um, there's some little little wrinkles in there that uh, can be used for other things. But basically, it was designed to be able to be mounted in an Altoids Mint tin using a small 12-volt uh, in-size battery uh, and to get everything inside a, a mint tin, except possibly uh, for a, a switch. It has to be, it has to be used, it has to be switched in and out of circuit, um, at least the RF portion of it, so that uh, when it's operating, the, the RF flows through that resistor bridge to operate, operate it. it. Uh, but that causes a 6 dB loss in the, in the transition path. So if you want to knock your power down by 6 dB, fine, but you have to switch it out of circuit when uh, when you're not measuring SWR, when you're not tuning. So you do need an external switch. Some guys have shoehorned one into a uh, an Altoids tin uh, and managed to do that. Um, a guy, uh, American Morse Equipment Company, I think it is, Doug Hoff, AE6RIE, makes a case and I forget what the name is. I should be in the references on the web page. But he makes a case which is a, a milled out aluminum case, which is a really snazzy case. It's about the size of a uh, an Altoids tin that um, 
can take this same board and you can mount it in there. It's much more rugged than an Altoids tin. They're a little pricey. I think they're about 30, 30 bucks or so. And he's currently not producing them. But uh, if, um, if enough people write to him, I'm sure he'll do another uh, production run of this. Um, although you don't have to put this in a, uh, in a, a freestanding tin. If you had a simple QRP rig and you wanted to build this uh, tuner right into the uh, chassis, you could do that into the chassis and the radio and put the, uh, the uh, uh, bypass switch in the chassis. That would work as well. Just arranging uh, holes in the, in the case for uh, being able to see the LEDs and have access to the tuning cap. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we put in a, uh, a polyvericon cap. Um, with a wider tuning range, which uh, has a nice shaft on it. Uh, actually, you build up the shaft with some uh, nylon spacers so that you can put a regular uh, tuning knob on it. The original um, uh, compression trimmer, you had to use a small non-conductive screwdriver to tune. So it was a, it was a little less uh, convenient. But it had the advantage, too, of uh, extending the tuning range up to uh, 20 meters. Um, some have gone down to 80 meters. In fact, I've done this with a, an 80 meter half wave wire. If you connect a 390 or 470 puff cap in parallel with the, uh, the inductor and the tuning cap, it will tune down to 80 meters and you can use it with a, an 80 meter um, infed half wave antenna uh, quite well. But then you have to switch that out if you want to use, uh, use it on other bands. Um, the, the very end of the, um, the reference material we had, um, there are some other ideas of, of things you could do with the, the tuning components in the tuner. Um, instead of having a parallel resonance circuit, you could, uh, you could have a, a series resonance circuit. You'd have to rewire the inductor and the uh, tuning cap, but you could have a series resonance circuit that uh, you could use with a quarter wave antenna. Uh, and you'd have to pick different taps on the inductor, but uh, indeed for a special application, this would allow you to tune a quarter wave antenna to resonance with the same physical components, just rewiring them. Similarly, you could rewire the inductor uh, with appropriate taps and the um, tuning capacitor to make, to make an L section network for uh, uh, wider impedance uh, um, transformation. A couple different configurations. You'd have to uh, find the values that worked to what you wanted to do, but indeed, you're not restricted to uh, just just uh, using this the components in the box for a half-wave uh, antenna. Did uh, someone have a question? Yeah, Joe, this is Dave, over. Go ahead, Dave. Okay, I built the uh, tuner from uh, AA5TB, and uh, I used a 100-puff variable, a regular, uh, you know, air variable, and uh, a toroid uh, 50-2 with uh, 29 turns on the side. And uh, I had a pickoff link of about three turns to get me into 50 ohms. And I can tune 40, 20, and 30 meters with a 62 foot length of wire and uh, uh, a ground rod 
instead of a counterpoise. Uh, that worked out pretty well over. Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, there's a little wider tuning range. Yes, uh, AA5TB has a, a link-coupled uh, tuner, uh, similar in construction. And, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, another thing I've done is is to use a 60-foot piece, I'm sorry, a 30-foot piece of wire on, on 20 meters, which is uh, a little short. Uh, it also works. So if you're close to residents or... Um, uh, you can use on multiple bands if if the half wavelength uh, um, multiple comes into play. Very good, Dave. Patience. Uh, I hope you I hope you're able to do something that in your uh, tenor restricted community. I guess Dave's being mum about that. No, okay, uh, the final thing I'm, I'm doing that, Joe. Uh, I'm working with the uh, uh, putting uh, everything in a box uh, with the uh, a Hendrix receiver, a small tuner, and a key, and uh, uh, try and uh, uh, work it in the backyard over. That's a good idea. So you're going to do it kind of a uh, um, set it up when you want to operate it and then tear it down when you're not. Uh, so avoid the uh, the community association people. Uh, Roger that. That's clever. That idea. Okay, the the final thing I wanted to talk about is uh, is it not um, not super stupendous, wonderful, but uh, some various configurations of the half wave uh, NVED wire. Um, most of the time, when I use a, a particularly a forty meter wire, sixty some foot piece of wire, um, I can't stick it horizontally. Uh, 60 feet. I'm not way up in the air and you want to have the wire up as high as you can. So what I do, and uh, you can follow in figure six if, if you're following on the web page, I hook it as, as a inverted L with a uh, quarter wave of the wire going roughly vertically and then another quarter wave out horizontally. And I have indicated a quarter wave counterpoise. Um, that's a, a matter of some conjecture on people's parts. I usually get away with only uh, 10 feet or less of a counterpoise, and it's good enough that it works, and I don't have too many uh, body capacity effects. Um, if you're operating on 20 meters and you have a high tree, you can uh, go straight up with a wire and have a very effective halfway vertical antenna. This is great for low angle stuff. Uh, more generally, if, um, if you have a... Uh, Antenna mast that's not quite high enough to uh, to do the inverted L, and you only have one mast. You can uh, stretch the wire, the half wave wire out, uh, kind of at a 45 degree angle, and have a sloper, which also works pretty effectively. And uh, if you're high, uh, one of the things you can do is if you're uh, 20, 30 feet above ground, and uh, say on the deck of a house on the roof of a house, you can run the uh, half-wave wire horizontally, have a horizontal half-wave antenna, and then run the counterpoise down, um, sloping or uh, straight down. So a number of different configurations for the half-wave wire. They're all reasonably good, and uh, at least with the low power, they're no problem. And as Dave, uh, Dave Ottenberg pointed out, 
the tuner, you don't have to use exactly a half wave wire. If it's close, uh, you'll probably be able to have enough tuning range to, uh, uh, to get it to work uh, in range. Um, any, any more questions about uh, the circuit, uh, half wave wires, or um, just about anything with, uh, with this top? Uh, Joe? Yes, sir. Uh, my question is, uh, I have uh, an original rainbow tuner kit, the one with the compression capacitor, but I think the idea of the polyvaricon is much better uh, way to deal with it. Uh, how easy do you think it would be to make a substitution? I don't think it'd be difficult. Um, you know, the um, basically what you do would be to take the take the copper traces off the uh, um, pull the pull the polyvaricon off, take the copper traces off the board, drill the appropriate holes to run the um, um, the lugs from the polyvaricon, and then just wire it up with uh, uh, with bare wire on the bottom of the board. Or maybe even just uh, glue the thing to the board. Yeah, you could glue it to the board. The only thing you have to be careful of there is uh, don't get the glue inside or you'll gum up the variable cap. I, I may have done that once or twice myself. <laughs> okay, roger that. Joe, did you mention the uh, enclosure from Doug Hoff? I did. I didn't remember the part number, but I mentioned that in our references we have, oh, okay, it's the American Morse Equipment AA1 enclosure. Like I say, it is currently out of stock, but I, I have a feeling that if a uh, number of people uh, wrote to, uh, um, went to the American Morse page and, and found out the uh, uh, internet address, the email address for uh, American Morse and asked for one, um, the guy would uh, come up with another batch. They're good for more than just a tuner. They're a nice, rugged little, little, um, little container for us as well. I have one of those. This is Paul, and uh, I'll vouch for their quality. They're very, very uh, nicely machined and a good fit for just about anything, as you said. Yeah, I had the good fortune. Uh, George N2APB uh, did some troubleshooting on my uh, um, ATS-3B, the uh, KD-1JV rig, and uh, as a as a special favor for me, he put it in one of those little boxes. That is really sweet. That is a really neat box, and you know, it it uh, it um, approximates the size of a deep rainbow. I'm sorry, a deep um, Altoids tin. So it is a very, very convenient size. It's called the AA1 enclosure. I put the link to American Moors on our uh, on our text portion here uh, on this website on our website. So if you wanted to go there, you could actually see what we're talking about. And it uh, it's just really nice. You could even put other kinds of antenna tuners in there too. Just really convenient. Uh, for example. Um, Oh, I'm not going to remember the name. Joe, what's the name of that uh, the popular one from NorCal? The Z-Match tuner, the BLT? Yeah, BLT, that's it. Uh, the bacon, lettuce, and tomato uh, antenna tuner. Uh, the balanced line tuner, I think is what it's called, the BLT. It fits in there really, really nice. You have sort of like the KX3 with knobs coming out of every single surface, 
but nonetheless it's it's quite useful uh, uh, to take to the field and if you can see from the picture there on that website at american morse the aa1 enclosure is uh it's got an it's got two thumb nuts knurled nuts for those of you who are who know our are, are knurled nut aficionados um can be turned and um that top piece slides or pivots off to make the access really nice and easy easy for joe's uh, uh ats you know changing bands of the ats transceiver as well as for changing the uh changing the little uh shunt on the uh rainbow tuner uh the tuner portion of it i also put um uh, a number of links hopefully you've been looking at the, the website here the text portion of our website web page a number of links for the add-on antennas that Joe has been talking about. Um, a number of them are discussed in the uh, what we call the application notes back then um, to how to use different antenna configurations with the Rainbow Tuner. And then also what we did is we, we kind of came up, Joe came up with a, uh, a method that we named the add-on um, add kit for the Tuner to allow it to officially get to different bands and I put that link there too. So in the process of uh, either whipping up the circuit on your own bench and kind of like Manhattan style, or if uh, if you wanted to grab one of the kits when we have it available again, or use one that you've got stuffed away gathering dust, there are some cool ways of extending its use and capability for you in the field. And as I indicated, I still use the FWA, the NFED half-wave antenna, as my primary antenna when going field to the field only because it's just so darn easy to to kind of wrap up when you're done uh, to uh, unwrap it and toss it over to a tree and just kind of lay it out and start working uh, start working the world okay i think uh if we have any more questions about uh infant half-wave antennas or uh, any of the topics we've discussed tonight Joe, did you mention the other? Sorry, Paul. Did you happen to mention the other uh, uh, antenna configurations in Figure Seven? Sorry if you did. I'm looking at Figure Seven. Go ahead, Paul. Meanwhile. Yeah, just a, a quick one. What about uh, feeding the antenna with uh, like a four to one or eight to one ballon in a normal tuner? Your audio is a little weak, Paul, but. Uh, you you were asking about balance. Yeah, re reducing the uh, you know the impedance by using a, a four to one or eight to one balance, with, and then going into a, a regular tuner. Would, would that uh, is it the efficiency better using the NPEN half wave tuner, or uh, would there be you know again is there a lot of loss in using a balance? Well, <laughs> I won't go into that in detail, but yes, if you put a balance there. Um, You'll, you'll, you'll get a pretty good match, but I suspect that the match is because of uh, loss in the balance. Uh, balance and high impedances and balance and in reactive antennas uh, um, give you a good match by having a lot of loss in my view. Okay, thanks. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to rant, but <laughs> uh, that, that's been my experience. Yes, George, I did mention both the the other uh, half-wave uh, NFED uh, antenna configurations and the other uh, matching network configurations. 
Okay, good. I'm, I'm sorry. I was tuning out and kind of preparing other questions and such here. I see that uh, Russ has uh, mentioned or has pointed us toward the LM3914. And indeed, we have seen that and have actually used it, Russ. Um, it's a it's an it's it's a built-in comparator of ten different steps or ten different levels that can be uh, matched, and that was the application that I sort of alluded to. I use you, one could use this um, rainbow comparator circuit as a power indicator. You could use the LM three uh, thirty nine fourteen even better as one because it has more granularity, 10, 10 steps. I used that one in a uh, circuit that was published in. in uh, QST. I think that was, that might have been the cover issue, I can't recall, um, a number of years ago. It was called the Warbler Power Meter. And I used the LM3914 uh, in the fashion that I had mentioned with Joe, that if you fed RF to the input of that comparator, um, detected RF, uh, rectified, and you could, and you had it compared to a DC voltage, you could have LED bar graph um, LEDs illuminate um, in a manner that depicted the amount of power that was coming, um, that was being transmitted that you were trying to measure. So that's indeed a, uh, um, a nice 10-step uh, comparator, all built into one chip. Okay, Joe, anything else? No, I think, uh, I think that's about it. I think we've about covered it. And uh, I thank everyone for the questions. Always good to have a little feedback so that we can uh, uh, perhaps amplify on things we uh, we didn't cover or uh, uh, give a little uh, a little more information on particular subjects. But uh, I'm done for now, George. Okay. Well, Joe, thanks an awful lot. You did a great job on this uh, this overview, and it's, it's kind of fun to brush the dust off an old design such as this. Because I think we've all encountered uh, designs that are oldies but goodies. In other words, things that were done back a while ago don't necessarily fall out of uh, disuse because the circuits are still, the principles are still in operation today. They still work today. Um, SWR is SWR. We're going to have that condition probably uh, in years to come as well. So ways of measuring SWR in a convenient, um, novel clever and, and useful manner is a is, is kind of a, a fun thing to explore. And that's what we hope to go through today and is explaining the circuits and uh, the reasoning, the logic for uh, how SWR can be, uh, measurement can be approached in this manner and in a relatively simple and uh, simple fashion. Um, as indicated before, you know, we are, um, we have a number of uh, um, printed circuit boards left over from the run some 10 years ago that ended 10 years ago and uh, we're about ready to uh, to put that into gear again and so we'll have a limited run of the kit available hopefully soon like within several three weeks at most I would think and uh, again if you were here um, listening real live in real time to this session um, we'll extend a special offer to you uh, to get this kit as uh, at cost. Otherwise, uh, you know, the, the advertised price is going to be higher. So if you mail me with, uh, uh, once we announce, once we announce, if you mail me and um, desire a kit, you know, we can get you, get you set up relatively inexpensively. And the, and the reason for that, again, is in order to help you 
um, experiment with the principles that we're discussing here to hopefully broaden your horizons a bit with uh, components, the um, the configurations of circuits, and uh, and then bring your uh, experiences back here to the group and ask more questions and, and kind of uh, feed the fire, as it were. We really enjoy the questions that are asked during the sessions and hope that uh, you can join us again and spread the word and bring on uh, bring on some of your friends and and, and such. We advertise this on all of the known lists that we frequent. Um, so the word is certainly out there, but uh, you know, with the 30 people or so that, that check in here on a, on, an, on a growing basis, I think is uh, a good indication and, and uh, there, there's still a lot more fun that can be had. I like the question that uh, I think it was Nick had or somebody had mentioned that why don't we talk about uh, toroids and and uh, resonant frequencies and combinations of L's and C's and how do you come up with a certain inductance for inductors for a toroid inductors and uh, that might be a good topic in the future who knows how uh, you know when that that will actually be but that's probably a really fine topic we all use toroids we all love winding toroids so I mean what better way than to understand what we we love like that Okay, um, we're going to call it quits here for tonight. Thank you very much, everybody, for attending. Um, we we will see you next week at the same time, same uh, session. We will um, we'll post the audio for this in just a day or so to the web page, plus some additional material that we collected during the session. And you can uh, add this to your growing repertoire of, uh, of uh, reference material that you picked up here at uh, Chat with the Designers uh, web pages. We're accumulating quite a bit of uh, good reference material. Kind of interesting if you'd like to listen along, even for just uh, looking at offline, or certainly listening to the podcast offline, it's uh, it, it can be a useful thing too. We'd love to hear from you, and especially if you have other topics that might be of interest to you, because chances are it's going to be of interest to somebody else too. So once again, Joe and I thank you very much for attending tonight. We'll see you all next week. This is George N2APB and Joe N2CX. Signing off with Chat with the Designers and saying a big 73 to everybody. Bye-bye. Please tune in next week for the next session of Chat with the Designers. Mm -hmm.